Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. In the book of Matthew, when he writes about resurrection morning, uh, one of the things that Matthew does that none of the other writers do is to give us some very specific information about the Roman soldiers who were there. And it makes sense when you think about it, because Matthew was a tax collector before he became a disciple. And as a tax collector, he would have had so much more interaction with the Roman government and Roman soldiers than any of the other disciples. And so when he writes up his story about what happened on Resurrection Morning, the fact that there were Roman guards there was something that he wanted to tell us about because he would have been very familiar with Roman soldiers and Roman guards and what they were supposed to do and, and all of that. And so he shows us here uh, in his passage of Matthew 28 two reactions to the angel coming from heaven to roll away the stone. And one of those reactions is reflected by the Roman soldiers, who basically fainted fainted away and became like dead men because they were so afraid. They were so afraid they fainted. These are Roman soldiers, battle-hardened, tough guys that had put their lives on the line and yet they fainted away with fear. Can you imagine how fearful they must have been? On the other hand, uh, Matthew shows us the reaction of the women who were at the tomb. And although they were afraid, and he says they were afraid, and yet they were filled with great joy, he says. Great joy. So the, um, the Roman guards experienced great fear from the coming of the angel, and the women experienced great joy. It's the same event, the coming of the angel, and yet two such different, separate reactions to it. And I think that's kind of a precursor for what's going to happen someday in the future when Jesus comes again. It's going to be the same event, his return, his second coming, and yet there will be two reactions to that event as well. Great, great fear from unbelievers and great, great joy from those of us who do believe. We're going to talk about that some in this uh, edition, in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study.
Well, before we get started, and uh, we're back in Matthew 28 again, by the way, um, before we launch into that, I wanted to read you a little excerpt here. As uh, I'm reading um, David Palmer's book that he wrote called Casket Empty, and uh, the sub... Come on in. That door's locked. Oh, oh it is. <laughs> I'm so good. The door I tried. Only it was a storage room. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the uh, the subtitle is God's Plan of Redemption Through History. And so as I was reading it uh, this week, I came, came across a passage and I thought, this is so good, I have to read it to the class. Um, it's kind of a summary of what he has titled this book, God's Plan of Redemption Through History. And he, uh, Towards the end of the book, and he kind of kind of brings it together in this really kind of snapshot that I thought was just brilliant. And so I wanted to share it with you. And so here's what he says here. He says, Jesus fulfills Israel's expectations of the Son of Man when he announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. His public ministry demonstrates the reality of the kingdom with healings, casting out demons, and prophetic signs. His atoning death enacts the new covenant. His victory on the cross disarms principalities and powers. His resurrection dawns God's new creation. His ascension enthrones him as exalted Lord. With heavenly authority, Jesus commissions his people to teach the nations. He pours out the Holy Spirit to empower their witness. He gathers all nations into the church to display God's renewed humanity in Christ. Uh, at the same time, the New Testament also announces that the full realization of God's purposes are still yet to come. The kingdom of God grows among wheat and weeds. Church leaders are in the pains of labor until Christ is formed in the lives of their people. The church is a bride still being perfected. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and an unbelieving world persecutes the church. False teaching assails the church which has been entrusted with God's truth. The end times have truly begun, and yet the spirit of the Antichrist has gone out into the world. The kingdom of God is inaugurated, but not fully consummated. An intense spiritual battle still remains. The final book of the Bible encourages God's people with a revelation. Revelation pulls back the veil and allows us to see a single extended vision of God in the heavenly sanctuary. We see the Lord enthroned. He is worshipped in the beauty of holiness. He is surrounded by the heavenly host and an innumerable multitude of the redeemed from every nation. God is in control. His purposes will be fully accomplished in heaven and on earth. Uh, God reveals Christ's present rule and future glory. This reality produces hope and strengthens our resolve in times of distress. Jesus is revealed as the exalted Son of Man and Lord of the Church. He is worshipped in heaven and stands worthy to enact God's eternal purpose. He releases a measured wrath even as he gathers a people for himself. He triumphs in a spiritual battle over Satan's counterfeit kingdom. He will return in visible glory and final victory. He will condemn evil and create a new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. The new Jerusalem then descends like a bride adorned for her husband. In the end, we are drawn back to the very beginning of the Bible. God dwells in the midst of his people. 
Humanity, made in his image, has access to the tree of life. The lamb who was slain for us is adored forever. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. God's people respond in hope. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Isn't that good? It's a real synopsis of so much and um, really, really well done. So I thought you would enjoy that today. So. How did the choir song singing go today? Was it wonderful, beautiful, excellent? <laughs> well, the early, uh, the early people, uh, the, the early returns are that it was excellent because some people were listening to your rehearsal. So, <laughs> so way to go. It's a, it's a song that once we learned the words to rhythm and stuff, it was just the choir practice turned into a worship session. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it can't get better than that. It can't get better than that. So terrific. First, first thing in the morning and stuff like that. That's just the two soulless are wonderful. It's a nice way to start the day and the Sunday. Let's go to prayer. Um, since you're back, Mr. Dennis, would you mind opening us with prayer today? Yeah. Thanks. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you in this period of time between our salvation and our all-time glorification, as we sit before the throne of God who made all of this possible, we attempt to learn and to serve you with the very best that we can. We can't do that without your Spirit working among us. And so each day, Lord, we pray for a new filling of your Spirit that we might follow you every step of the way. Lord, that we might hear your voice and uh, follow your directions. Uh, Because, Father, the ministry is not just to us, but to all of those around us. You have called us to be your servants until we all arrive at the place you have prepared for us. And so I thank you for each one of us, Father, as we uh, attempt to serve you. We give you praise and thank you for this uh, fellowship uh, around uh, this uh, place. Thank you for the worship and for what you've allowed us to do here at Kenwood with our new facility. And we pray that it will be open to others as they come to uh, not just to see a great facility, but to worship and understand who you are. Thanks for David's book. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, the intellect that you've given him uh, is something that we all aspire to. uh, And uh, we pray that you will help us to put into uh, our own hearts and minds those things that he taught well. Bless us as we continue this work in our class, and we give you thanks for all these things in Jesus. Amen, 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 amen. Okay, so uh, back to Matthew chapter 28, and um, last week we did a quick overview of the passage, and then we launched into verse 1, which uh, we had a great discussion about. Uh, and I try to stop in 15 minutes early, so uh, today I'll try to go the whole time. Uh, but no, it was a wonderful, a wonderful discussion last week. So I'm not going to read the over the, the whole thing today. Let's go ahead and just launch in here, and uh, we'll pick up from before we left off, basically. But verse one of chapter 28 uh, says, "I'm going to I'm going to read what what it has in the Greek." which is, uh, it says, well after the Sabbath, we talked about that last week, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. We spent most of last week talking about that word look and how the Greek word there 
is the word that's not just to, it does mean to look with your eyes, but it has a secondary meaning that's deeper than that. And so an attempt to look at something to understand it, to try to grasp what's going on. Uh, And also we talked about the deeper meaning of how, you know, like we go to a cemetery to have, there's something special about being there that happens emotionally and even spiritually that you don't get anywhere else. And so the women were going there, and kind of the way we concluded is they went there not really just to look with their eyes. They went there to look at the tomb with their hearts. They went there to look at the tomb with their spirits. So it was more than just the physical observation of the tomb. You know, they're still confused. Mark tells us on the way that they're asking, you know, who's going to roll the stone away. The two on the road to Emmaus later that day we're talking about what does all this mean, and probably the women were also having that same kind of conversation. So um, when they're going there to look with their eyes, but they're going there to have that emotional connection that can only happen there at that time, uh, not knowing what they did not know. So that was what we talked about last week. So let's launch in, launch in here to verse 2. Uh, it says in the Greek again, Behold, there was a violent earthquake. And uh, we talked last week that the word there is mega, which means great. So the literal translation is, behold, there was a great earthquake. Uh, For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And again, the Greek here in the original way it's written is, uh, the the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and having come, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. We talked about the appearance of like lightning, how Moses had the radiant face when he came out of the presence of, of God, uh, how uh, Stephen, as he looked into heaven, had that same kind of radiant look on his face, and how, you know, not be surprised that when you see angels, there's this radiant, glowing, like lightning appearance, because they're always in the presence of God, so why wouldn't they be? And then the whitest snow, you know, speaking of the purity and the, and the sinlessness. Um, and then uh, verse 4, uh, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And in the original Greek, the word for shook there has the same base word as the word earthquake. So the word earthquake is seismos. And then this word is something, something seismos. I don't know the, all of it, but I don't remember all of it. But the same root seismos is in both words. And so what um, Matthew is trying to tell us here is that there was a, a, a physical earthquake in the earth when the uh, angel came to turn back the stone. And there was a personal earthquake within each of these guards. Uh, that as there was a great earthquake that shook the earth, that these men also were greatly shaken, so much so that they became like dead men. Dead men. And uh, I think the implication there is that they didn't just pretend to be like dead men. I think they really did faint away. They were so afraid that they fainted. They were out of it for a while. Uh I've never fainted from fear, but I know it's possible. I know, have any of you ever fainted from fear before? But 
I know you have to be really, really, really afraid, generally speaking, to faint from fear. Jan and I are watching a show, the, what is it? Shrink Next Door, I think it's called. The Shrink Next Door. It's a true story, but this, uh, it's, a, it's a story about this guy who, uh, he had this social issue that when there was any kind of conflict, he would get so upset and nervous and afraid, he, he would faint away. And uh, so it, it happens. Um, but I just can't imagine, I mean, I, I can only imagine how afraid they must have really been to literally faint and become like dead men because they were unconscious for a while. So anyway, they shook. They had this personal, um, personal earthquake. They trembled is another uh, way we could translate that. And then in verse 5, again, the original says, but answering, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. And we talked about what answering, what's he answering? We talked about how in Mark, he kind of tells us they were saying, who's going to roll away the stone? How are we going to get to Jesus? And maybe this is him answering those things that they were asking on the way to the tomb. So, but answering, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. So I want to spend just a minute here talking about this verse. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. So um, the, the word used here for looking is not the same as the word in verse 1. It's a different Greek word. And the word here in verse 5 is the idea of seeking, you are looking for, in the idea of you are seeking something. So when I can't find my glasses, I'm looking for them, which means I'm not looking for them. So I mean, I want to look at them. I want to see them. But I'm actually, what, I'm mean, what I mean is I'm searching for them. I'm seeking them. And so this is the kind of word that's used here in verse 5 when it says that, uh, the, the angel says, you know, I know that you are looking for Jesus. You are seeking Jesus who was crucified. So it's interesting to me that the angel says to them, he's kind of reinforcing their motivation for coming. Uh, we know that in addition to, to, to look at the grave, they're also coming with the spices and so forth to anoint his body. So they're coming to seek Jesus, to look for Jesus, uh, to physically, their hope is to physically see his dead body. And so what he is saying here in verse 5 is kind of reinforcing their motivation. I know that you are seeking Jesus who was crucified. You're seeking, see, what were they seeking? They were seeking a dead man. They didn't come seeking a live Jesus. They didn't come seeking a resurrected Jesus. They came seeking the Jesus who was crucified. They came looking for seeking a dead man. And so he reinforces this. He says, I know that you're seeking, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, the dead Jesus. And he says that, so, so I like that because he kind of sets that, because he sets them up with that. And then in verse 6, he drops the bomb. Because in verse 6, he says, He is not here. He is risen, 
just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. So he sets them up. You've come looking for the dead man. You've come looking for the crucified Jesus, the dead Jesus. You're seeking him, his body, physically. And they say, yeah, that's what we're here for. That's why we're here. That's it. It's exactly right. He goes, drops the bomb. He ain't here. He's risen. And I just love that because they came seeking a dead man, but they found a living Savior. They came seeking a dead man, and they found a, a living Savior. And I think we've talked about this before, you know, certain books and authors. And the one I like is The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. When he was an atheist, basically didn't believe. His wife became a believer. She changed so much. And he's a, he was a lawyer and a journalist. And he said, well, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to prove. I'm going to go back. I'm going to do, look at this as a lawyer. I'm going to look at this as a journalist. I'm going to go back and look at all. And he interviewed people all around the world and went back and looking, spent, I don't know how long, but an intensive study of is this real? Is this story real about Jesus? Can I really believe it? Or, and I think in his case, he went looking for a dead man, a dead Jesus, but he found a life savior and he became a Christian and he believed based on the evidence that he was able to find like a lawyer would find in a trial. So I think that's so cool. A lot, and, you know, I, I would welcome more people to come looking for a dead Jesus because, you know what, I think they would find a, a living a living savior as well. Ruth, did you have something? He wrote more than that. He wrote that book. And then he wrote Right, Case for Faith. And, love for you as I had in my little finger. And so when he found the Lord in that intellectual way, he was searching and being, and he was performing at a very high level just to feel worthy of his father's love. Earthly love. Earthly father's love. Then, after a number of years, he had a heart attack and had lots of heart problems. Mm. He was out of commission for quite a while. And so that, what did that do to his performance? Oh, yeah. He couldn't be who he wanted to be to feel worthy of being loved. Hmm. And that's when he found God's grace. And that's something. And he writes about that. And then he writes about um, other people who have needed God's grace. And that's... That's, I think that's funny. I mean, he would have gone to heaven first, but this is when he really thought what God said. That's great. The other thing I, I think that this verse 5 and 6 bring to me is, you know, the angel says, you look for Jesus who's crucified. He is not here. He is risen. And to me, it's, that brings... To, together the juxtaposition of the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus who was crucified on the cross for you. But that's not the end of the story. Because he died there, but 
he's risen. And you have to have the he is risen part for the crucifixion part to mean anything. Because if you just stop at the crucifixion, you just have a dead Jesus. And a dead Jesus has no power. You can't overstate how important the cross was. You can't overstate what was done there for us. There's no way to over-appreciate or give thanks or describe what Christ did when he went to the cross for us. There's no way you can over-make it more than it was, because it was more than anything we can imagine. But without the empty tomb, none of that happens. And I think we get it backwards often, because chronologically, the cross was first and then the empty tomb. And so we tend to look at the empty tomb through the cross. Uh, but I think we should change that. I think we should look at the cross through the empty tomb. Because it's the empty tomb is the resurrection that gives the crucifixion meaning. It's the resurrection that gives the crucifixion power. It's, without the resurrection, the crucifixion just gives you a dead Jesus, a, a Jesus who's crucified. But when he is risen and he is not here, the resurrection, the empty tomb, then that imbues the cross with all the power. Because the cross now means what it means because Jesus defeated death. And, and even overcame. beyond the cross, this is birth. Yeah. So, you, you, Again, you, you, yeah. you go chronologically, that's what makes sense. So him risen, being risen and dying. Right. I, I think it took a lot of power, the power of his great love. No question. So there's power there, too. Oh, yeah. But without, but if he doesn't, if he doesn't rise again, if he isn't resurrected, he just dies as someone who, yeah, he, he, you know, he gave himself. But, but what does it result in? Nothing if there's not a risen savior. So I think we tend to, we tend to concentrate on the cross so much, and it is so important. You can't overstate it. But, but I think sometimes we, we leave Jesus on the cross, and we can't do that. We have to make sure we finish the story. Or start with the ending and then move back to say the cross meant all of that because he's alive. The cross meant means all of that because yeah, it'd be great. You know, when you think you know, think about the paradox though. Think about the paradox. Think about the paradox of a cross being a symbol for Christians. The cross is where Jesus died. The cross, it'd be like you might as well wear an electric chair around your neck because it was a method of killing people of executing people right but it's the empty tomb that makes the cross it's the empty tomb that makes the cross empty and makes the cross have meaning to us and it's it just shows the power of what happened with the empty tomb and with the and with the crucifixion and with the cross that we now can venerate the cross as a symbol of Christianity, even though Jesus died there. Why? Because he didn't say dead. That's why. And that's why the it, cross can be on an agnostics are pointing to that and trying to say, why do you wear that cross? You might as well wear an electric chip. And, and they missed the whole point. But before you leave that verse, yeah. it says, the angel said, he is risen just as he said. And all through the Old Testament, the prophets would say over and over again, it is written such and such and such and such. 
And it will come to pass. It will come to pass. That's what the angel was just saying there. It did come to pass. Right. Absolutely. And he says, come and see the place where, my translation says, come and see the place where he lay. But in the original Greek it says, come and see the place where uh, the Lord was lying. Come and see the place where the Lord was lying. I like adding the Lord in there. So. Well, I like the fact that the angel does know their humanness and that they need to see the empty. Yes. Yeah. It, it verifies what he's just told us. Right. Because... We're all kind of little doubting Thomases, aren't we? Yeah. It's like, you know, you don't, you know, kind of what he's saying is you don't just have to take my word for it. Come and see yourself. Come and see for yourself where your the Lord was lying. I think people wear the cross because that is something Jesus did for us. Right. And that's just what we like, That was such a big thing to do for us. But it's amazing, isn't it, that God can transform something that was meant for such evil and transformed it into something that means so so much so much good. That that he like he transforms us from lost to saved, and he transform can transform the cross from how evil it was intended to be to something we can claim as just like Joseph precious said, to us. For evil, but God good. Exactly right. I read in a magazine, like Christianity or something, reputable magazine, that the cross didn't become a symbol or jewelry or anything, just any kind of a symbol, until the last person that had ever witnessed a crucifixion had died because it was so horrible. Mm. I don't doubt that. They wouldn't wear it. I don't doubt that. That sounds reasonable to me. Okay, so then in verse 7, it says, I don't know what this is. I have a new phone. Stop. Okay, I'm trying to record. I'm trying to record. Okay. Yeah, I know. Okay, so that's that's a ringtone of people I don't want to talk to. So. Okay. Uh, verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and behold, and every time you hear the word behold, I want you to think, that what Matthew is saying is, can you believe this? And can you believe this? Um, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Uh, the angel says, okay, done my job. I've told you. Now it's up to you. You do your job. And what is their job? Go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell. And uh, John MacArthur says this about this uh, verse. He says, the women's fascination must quickly turn to proclamation. It's their fascination must quickly turn to proclamation. Now, we talked about this uh, several times in the past, about how um, it's the women, right, that are given this job. The angel didn't say to the disciples, go and tell at this point, because why? They were already... Women are more talkative. <laughs> oh, that's not the truth. But they, they ain't at the tomb, right? They're hiding. Yeah, they ain't at the tomb. They can't go and tell when they're behind locked doors hiding. So, so, so it's the women's job to go and tell. I think, too, that the women are used because the disciples have already been out there doing this and that and the other. 
but it's different. These women are now doing it, and that's something, hey, we better pay attention. These aren't the disciples now. This is the women. Right, but, but, but the weird thing is that God would do it that way because... Remember, in that day, the women had no standing. The women couldn't even testify in court. And so, my goodness, if you're going to give something this important, this message, go and tell, he's risen, he is not here, he's going to Galilee, there you'll see him. That's like the most important message ever in history. And you're giving it to women who in the culture of the day had no standing. That's what I mean. That's what makes people go, what? They're telling, they're saying this? Yeah. Well, it reminds me. Well, plus there's two women, so that equals one man. Two voices is one man. You know, that takes me back to the woman at the well. Yeah. She's the one. She had the message. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I just, yeah. She's the one that took off and told everybody. Yeah. I just want to say, this is a spectacular event here. Yeah. But what's preceded. Before the angel tells them to go, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a whole lot going on. That's, you know, I mean, the earthquake, you know, what I mean, takes him to the tomb, you know, leads him, shows him. I mean, they, they just have been, must have been, just, out of their skin. Exactly. You know what I mean? I was wondering, were earthquakes common? I don't think so. In that area? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. No. Well, it's on the, the Great Rift Valley, though. It, it, it is, is an it? active earthquake, so that's why there's all the volcanoes okay. in Italy and so forth. Yeah, still, still, it's the timing of it, right? The timing. Just when the angel come, there's one, right? Just when, just at Jesus' crucifixion, there's one, right? So, well, it reminded me. If you have, go to First Corinthians, if you if you have a minute, uh, go to First Corinthians, uh, chapter one, and this is what this reminded me of when I was thinking about. Why the women? Why the women? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So in this scenario of the resurrection morning, who would be the foolish things and who would be the wise things? Who would be the foolish people and who would be the wise people in the eyes of the world? The women would be the, the women would be the foolish, and the disciples would be the wise. He, God chose God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The weak things would be the women. The the strong would be the men. So yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the really the really weak ones would be. But but this also reminds me too, and uh, this also reminds me too of uh, like the shepherds. We talked about Jesus' birth. You know, on the on the hierarchy of the world of that day, the shepherds were on the low the low rung. The shepherds were the manual laborers of that day. Um, you know, they were they they were like just one step above women. Okay, then you have shepherds, right? But but it was to the shepherds that the angels appeared. It was to the women that the angel appeared. And uh, I just find that interesting that it reminds, I think Paul was so right in this verse that God chooses sometimes the foolish things and the weak things. Why? Because then it's it's a God thing. Yeah, then it's a God. It's not, a, it's not because they were disciples or because they were kings or whatever. They were shepherds and women and yet 
they did, and look what happened. And just interestingly, the word shame here in this verse 27 of 1 Corinthians, it, it means, um, the literal translation it means to blush, to blush with shame. And so the idea here is that uh, God uses the foolish things to basically uh, embarrass the strong things. He uses the foolish things to embarrass the, the wise. So uh, in this case, uh, when the disciples heard the report of the women, uh, they had to be a little bit humiliated by it. They had to be a little bit embarrassed by it. My goodness, the angel appeared to these women and not to us. You know, that's kind of embarrassing. We're supposed to be the, the guys. We're supposed to be the men. We're supposed to be the ones. And yet... Um, they, 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 they weren't the ones, right? Okay, so one of the things too is that let's look at what was going on with the disciples at the time. Peter denied Jesus, and he was in shame and guilt. And then, did, did, oh yeah, he's, you know, how many times did Jesus tell the disciples? On the third day, I will take over, and they didn't get it until they actually saw it so you know here they're hiding they're afraid that they're going to be attacked and they're wandering in their guilt and shame yeah and so you know the women haven't had a chance to, to be in guilt and shame because they weren't part of all that stuff they were following what the tradition was to prepare the body even though that it was prepared when they put his body into the grave it was not the whole treatment and they were looking to follow tradition. And it was always the woman's role. What was the woman's role? They were to go get water, to cook and all the thing. It was all the... Uh, so, but uh, the disciples just never got it. And, that, well, and I think that's really important. If you, look, if you want to look back at verse 27 for a minute of Matthew, uh, verse 20, I mean chapter 27, verse 55, I mean here's the description. Many women were there watching from a distance. This is the, at the crucifixion. Many women were there at the cross watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. This is what the women did. They cared for Jesus' needs. And they did it in life. They're going to do it in death. But looking for the dead Jesus, they found the living Savior. And um, I love verse 5 and 6 because of that juxtaposition. You came looking for a dead man, you got the live Jesus instead. So, Okay, so let's go now then to verse 8. Uh, because this gets back to what Jeff was just talking about, how they must have been kind of out of their minds with everything that was going on. It's just so overwhelming. Verse 8, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And again, in the uh, original Greek, it's that they are filled with great joy. So they hurried away from the tomb, uh, hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with great joy. And and. And I'm sure Matthew did this purposely to show that there was a great earthquake, but there was also great joy. So just as great as the earthquake was, so was the greatness of the joy that the women felt. Uh, and here again, I like what, what Matthew is giving us here in that he's showing us two responses, two completely different responses and reactions to the angel. 
who's announcing Jesus' resurrection. The first response that we see is what? Fear by the soldiers, right? Fear by So the, the angel comes, and the soldiers faint away. They have this earthquake, they're trembling, this personal earthquake, they're trembling, and they, 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 they faint away like dead men. So that's the first response that Matthew shows us. This is the response of the angel coming with this wonderful message. And then the second response is great joy. Great joy. So you have the same thing happening. The angel comes. And with the same thing that happened, two completely different responses to it, reactions to it. One of great fear, that they fall away, faint of fear like dead men. And yet, on the other hand, the women have this great joy that equals the fear, even probably even more so. So... I love the idea of having these two different responses because it is an illustration of what's going to happen someday in the future, isn't it? That also goes back to 1 Corinthians, that same verse, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong fishermen. Right. Yeah. And, and what I was talking about there, too, is, you know, so, Someday when Jesus returns, you're going to have the exact same... It's the same the same thing. One thing happens, Jesus returns. It's the one act, Jesus returns. And yet when he returns, you're going to have two completely different responses. Those who are unsaved, complete and total fear. And those who are saved, complete and total joy. So this is like a little precursor uh, that Matthew gives us. Hey, the angel came with the same message. Fear and joy... When Jesus comes again, same thing, one thing happens, great fear, and yet great joy. So, I love the way that illustrates that. Now, let me ask you this. Here is something I I, I, I want to see if you can help me with. It says, they were afraid, yet filled with great joy. How can you be afraid? I mean, doesn't the great joy kind of take the fear away? How can you have both be afraid and also have great joy in the same time? I have an example of that. I'm ready for you. Our daughter is in the delivery room. You know. Which one? Which daughter? We only have one that's kids. Oh. <laughs> this is the treatment I always get. So anyway. So Erin's in the delivery room. Now, we're afraid because she's had some complications and that this is true. You know, we're afraid. But we're also very joyous because we're going to get our grandchild. Okay. So that's an example of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I, mean, I think we have fear. Excuse me. I'm just going to say, I think that those emotions are for almost every woman. You know? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had an experience when I was back in the dark ages when I was working for Fort and Royal and I was a manager. And we had a key house in, in a warehouse that was separate from it. I saw a man walking around, and he finally came up to me and said, there's something wrong with the toilet. I was with, taking care of customers. As you had, that's when we still had worn the catcher and everything on your belt and everything. And I walked up to check up uh, to see what was wrong in the bathroom, and all of a sudden, fortunately, I had layers on me. Uh, of 
well, because it was wintertime, I felt a thud on the back of my neck, and I turned around, and I had a gun in my hand. Oh, my goodness. Uh, at that point, I was scared to death. I didn't know what was, I had sent a person up that, that was going to bring cleaning supplies to pick the cleaning supplies, so I was at the store by myself. I was handcuffed to the men's Oh urinal. my gosh. Where's the joy coming? <laughs> <laughs> well, where the joy came from was I was praying real hard that the yeah. like, cleanup person didn't come in while that was all going on. They took my car, they took the clean up the bank and everything. Uh, and there was a knock on the bathroom door, and I didn't know whether to say anything or not. The joy was, I recognized the voice as my cleaning person. And I said, don't ask questions, just call the police. And he unlocked the door and came in to check to make sure I was okay, and I could take a deep breath. But that was so traumatizing, yet at that point, I was scared to death. I thought, all I need is a pull to yeah. pull the trigger. Yeah. Uh, I got when uh, my cleanup person came, I was like, "Thank you, Jesus," you know. And when you go through that kind of thing, yeah. And it still doesn't mean that you're not having some after effects. Right. <laughs> but uh, you know, the joy is okay that I've been delivered from the danger, and now I can move on. Anyone else have any experiences? I say, in your case, is a good example. I think we are afraid when we don't know what's coming. When yeah. we don't know what's ahead of us. You don't the fear of the unknown. Yeah. Right. The women didn't know what was going to happen next with Jesus. You know, I could see the fear in that. You know? Well, let's get into that. Why would the women have been afraid then? So, Mike, you're saying what? That they didn't just, know? They, they just didn't. They were, they, you know, they didn't know what was coming next. You know? The fear of the unknown. In other words, Jesus is risen. Yeah. What now? What now? <laughs> yeah. Well, the men are locked up. Yeah. So they're looking at that. Why else do you think they might have been afraid? Any other? I mean, could they have been afraid because the angel had told them to do this, go and tell? Do you think there was any fear of like, how do we do this, or what if we, or what if we don't do it right? What if we don't do it right? You know. This is a pretty important message. If we don't do it right, is God going to strike us dead? You know, I mean, what if we don't so believe what it? the high priest had done to Jesus. Right. That's true. You know, here we are women. What's well, you get fear of the Jewish religious leaders, fear of the Romans, uh, fear of what God is going, you know, fear of the responsibility of it, maybe. Chuck, did you have something else? I just said that afraid that they'll be rejected. A fear of what the disciples' reaction is going to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think the one thing that helped out that Jesus did finally appear to them. So when he made that presence, it's, it, it concluded for all the women that okay, this is for real. He did take the grace from the dead. We'll probably get into that. They were chosen. Yeah. Chosen. Yeah. They were chosen. Yeah. Absolutely. If there was any fear that they personally that they could do that. I know when I yeah. feel like at times when I've been called into a ministry, it's like I don't know if I can do Overwhelmed? Yeah. Right. Are you sure about that? 
Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, I think more, 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 more often than not, when God calls us into some way of serving Him, that we pretty much none of us ever feel prepared for that. And so, you know, it's also kind of a step of faith. But there is fear and trembling that goes into that because it's the unknown, and because, you know, I don't feel like I'm qualified to do this. Uh, because, you know, that way it's a partnership with God, right? Uh, if you felt completely ready and, and prepared and you got it under control, then what role does God have in it? So I think sometimes God's, God gives us ways to serve that makes us feel overwhelmed and inadequate because it, it means we're going to rely on him to get us through it and not on, not on our own. More than the strong... To because we have to rely on him right. to do things his way. Yeah. I mean, have any of you ever done anything to serve, to serve the Lord that you felt I got this? No. <laughs> <laughs> I worked for the Reds for four years, and I was in charge of uh, I was in charge of everything that went on in the field except the ball game, pretty much. I was in charge of the <laughs> national anthem, and I was in charge of like the first pitch and I was in charge of like if bands would come and perform or if we had concerts afterwards or the fireworks or the giveaway promotions and, and all of that. And uh, so I was there for four opening days, four years. And the opening day, it, we, you know what my opening day is like with the Reds, right? So what would, you, what would happen is... Um, <laughs> This is back before computers and everything. And so uh, you come into January 2nd. And, of course, opening day is until April 1st, basically. And you come into January 2nd, and you, you felt like you were on this runaway train. And opening day was coming, and you could just not catch up. You couldn't stop this train. It was going. And every single day, I had a deadline. If I missed a day, I missed a deadline, and something wasn't going to get done. And it was, again, back before computers and internet and all that, and working from home. <laughs> Everyone forget. It was like, we had just been married. We just had our first daughter, and she was still an infant. And we were living in a condo out in Batavia. And it was a, it was a snowstorm. Uh, but it was February, I think. But I had, I had to get to work. I had to go to work. I was going to miss a deadline. I missed a day. I missed a deadline. So just as I'm getting ready to go out, the electricity goes out in the condo. And so there's Jan and my newborn infant daughter, and I have to leave them in the middle of a snowstorm without any power, with no heat. Well, it so happens that we did have a fireplace, and so in the basement. And so I said to Jan, let's go in the basement, I'll start a fire, put some firewood here, you know, when the fire starts going down, just put some more wood on it, and, you know, just keep it going. You'll stay warm, just stay close to the fire, you and Aaron will be fine, you'll be warm. So I, get, I go to work, and uh, so I, later on I call, I call Jen, and I said, Jen, you know, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you okay? She goes, yeah, but I ran out, because Jen, it wasn't a smoldering fire. She wanted a rip-roaring fire, you know, and she wanted to stay ripping and roaring. And so I said, yeah. she goes, yeah, I used all the firewood, 
And uh, I started using uh, the, the, the phone book, and I put that in there. And then about that time, the power came back on. I said, thank goodness, because she was going to be putting furniture in that fire. She was going to be <laughs> cutting up the furniture. <laughs> but, uh, but the point of my story really is every, every year, about three weeks, two or three weeks before opening day, I started getting this nervous twitch in my eye. And it just wouldn't, it, I couldn't control it. It wouldn't stop. And it was just the stress of not being prepared. For, there, there was no way. I never felt prepared for one of them. Not one of them. And yet they all went off just fine. If something didn't happen, no one knew. And everything everything worked out okay. The things you worry about seldom happen. Sometimes exactly. It's much better, sometimes it's much worse. Exactly. <laughs> Mostly much better, hopefully. Then you retire. And you have nightmares. You've got to get this done. you got to end your money or something. You can't run fast enough or other. Every once in a while, I'll have one of those. Or I'll be put in front of a classroom and there are no lesson plans. Or wake up in a cold sweat. You know what you really have to have to be prepared? That verse says that the Lord searches the earth for those that are wholly devoted to Him. That he might show himself strong in their behalf. That's what you need to be well, and, for. A, and that's and, that, and that's exactly what I'm saying is, you know, the Lord got me through those four opening days. The Lord gets you through the ministry you don't think you're qualified for. But the women are feeling this now. They're feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling, you know, I'm not I'm not prepared for this. I'm not good enough. Whatever they're thinking, and that brings them fear. But you know. But at the same time, I have this great joy because Jesus is alive. And, and what they will understand as they go on is that God has this for them. And they're going to do it with, with his help. They've and also seen, just seen an angel. Yeah. Well, true, yeah. My Bible don't say hello. They'll say fear not. Every, almost every time. They know you're going to be afraid. They've just seen an angel. That's so good. We did our prayer requests earlier. Yeah, yeah we should have just a few more minutes here and then we'll just have a closing prayer at the end. But um, let's look at verse 9 then. Uh, it says. Oh, we do? Oh, okay. Well, then we're done. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.